As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Coming up on today's episode, we talk to a guest who played an extremely important role in college football history. We talk about Kyler Murray's decision to stay in the NFL draft and why does Bruce hate recruiting rankings? All coming up on the Audible. Welcome back to the Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as often as the case by my colleague Stuart Mandel. Stu, we got a very important guest on the Audible today, a guy who spent three plus decades in the NFL, but also has a really, really important connection to the history of college football. And that is Jimmy Ray. And we'll explain more in a minute. Yeah, really, really fascinating to talk to him. This being Black History Month, give Bruce credit for coming up with the idea. We, we hope to do more guests like this. So let's go to the interview. Uh, now we got a special guest. So I'll preface this by saying a few weeks ago, we had Manny Diaz on and it gave us an opportunity to stretch beyond just the news of the day. And we're looking to do more of that on the Audible, especially in the off season. Since February is Black History Month, I thought it'd be an ideal time to delve into a coach who I think may be the most underrated, important figure in the sports history. His name is Duffy Doherty, and he is in the College Football Hall of Fame, but I'll be honest, Stu, if it weren't for a chance meeting I had with our guest today a few years ago, I'd really have no idea just how big an impact Duffy Doherty has had. Our guest today is Jimmy Ray. He's a longtime NFL coach who back in 1966 became the first black quarterback from the South to win a national title. Jimmy, we're glad to have you join us. You're from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Tell us a little bit about what the recruiting climate was like back then for top high school players in the South, and what was Duffy Doherty's underground railroad? Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show, Bruce. Back in the mid-'60s, there wasn't any recruiting climate for black athletes in the South. Basically, all of the schools within a 60-mile radius of where I live in Atlantic Coast Conference, uh, all of those schools were segregated. They weren't allowed to give athletic scholarships to black athletes in, in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Texas, Virginia, uh, up, up and down the eastern seaboard, and in the deep south. 
it wasn't the atmosphere for recruitment of black athletes didn't exist. Thanks for a guy, a coach from Michigan State University named Duffy Daugherty. We had an opportunity. We were identified as a top athlete, a black athlete in the South, recommended by high school coaches or an alumni from the school. We had an opportunity to be recruited by Michigan State and a chance to play in a, in a bigger conference, in a conference outside the historical black schools. So back then, one of your teammates, who was a two-time All-American, George Webster, first-round pick in the draft, was part of that great 1966 Spartans team. He's from South Carolina, right? What was I remember when, when we talked a few years back, and I should preface it by saying Coach Ray and I had, I had met him when he was helping train Cardell Jones down in San Diego to get ready for the draft a few years back. And over lunch, you know, I was just fascinated to pick his brain on a lot of stuff, quite honestly. Stu, I had heard the name Duffy Doherty, probably like you, but just I didn't really have much context other than I knew he was a legendary coach at Michigan State, but that was about it. So in the climate of that, what was the recruiting story behind George Webster to get him to Michigan State? George George was a a great football player. Um, I think he was voted Big Ten player of of the decade uh, when we came out of school. George... um, George came by Michigan State by Frank Howard, who was the coach at Clemson at the time and friends of Duffy Doherty. George got hurt in the high school all-star game, hurt his knee in the high school all-star game, and Frank Howard took George over to the Clemson University uh, orthopedic department, and they performed the operation on George on the cartilage in his knee. And in the process, told Duffy about George, and that's how his recruitment started to Michigan State. There was another gentleman at the University of Minnesota who had coached in at the University of Tennessee named Mary Walmack, who also recruited a lot of black athletes out of the South because of his familiarity with the South. His name was Mary Walmack. He recruited Carl Eller and Bobby Bell, a couple of Hall of Famers, uh, at the University of Minnesota, but George played the position of defensive safety in in college. He was about six four, about two thirty, and could run like a deer. And Frank Howard couldn't take him at Clemson, but he told Duffy about him and made sure that uh, Duffy got a chance to see him and took care of the operation, and that's how he ended up at Michigan State. Charlie Mad Dog Thornhill from Roanoke, Virginia, had a similar circumstance. He was a great fullback at in Roanoke, Virginia, in high school, and Bear Bryant was speaking at his high school clinic, uh, his, not at his clinic, at his high school athletic banquet, and he called Duffy Doherty about Charlie Thornhill. And Charlie came to Michigan State and went on to become great linebacker along with George Webster uh, on the defense of the 65 and 66 teams. Bubba Smith was a was an anomaly. He was a different guy. He was a number one pick in the draft off of that 66 team. Bubba Smith's father, Willie Ray Smith, was a high school coach in Beaumont, Texas, and Duffy met Willie Ray Smith through the through the black high school coaches clinic that he that he was putting on in the South, 
because back in that time, uh, the black coaches wasn't allowed to go to the college coaches convention. They had to sit outside, sit outside. So Duffy took it upon himself to start a black coaches clinic, a coach, a coaching clinic for black high school coaches. And in turn, those high school coaches would call Duffy when they had a great player or a good player and recommend him, recommend that player to uh, Michigan State from the South. Bubba Smith had an older brother named Willie Ray Smith who went to the University of Iowa a year ahead of Bubba. Duffy spent all of his time with Willie Ray Sr., making sure he got Bubba Smith and his younger brother, Toby Smith. So, Jimmy, it's you know been written a lot about over the years how coaches like you mentioned Frank Howard, Bear Bryant, they wouldn't recruit black athletes, but they would help them, you know, in these cases, find a spot. And it seems like it was usually with Duffy Doherty. But, I mean, it's impossible for us to, to be in the mindset that you were then. What was the, was there frustration on the part of black athletes in the South? Hey, why can't we play for Clemson or Alabama? Uh, or was it just kind of accepted? Well, well, Bruce, when you, when you grew up in a segregated society, your frustration was limited to the, from the standpoint of you, you knew what your options were and what your possibilities were. Duffy Doherty, when he started recruiting black athletes out of the South, opened up a, with the Underground Railroad that got guys out of the South to Michigan State, opened up a whole different avenue and a whole different opportunity for black athletes in the South. I was, all of us that were from the, from the South, we had known Jim Crow and racism since our infancy. So there wasn't, there wasn't any frustration in, in terms of the possibilities of going to play somewhere else. It was just a denial of the opportunity. But Duffy Doherty changed all of that. When he started, with, made, made friends with the black high school coaches in the South and recognized the problem of Jim Crow and, and segregation and started recruiting black athletes in the South. Stu, for context, that 1966 Michigan State team had four of the top eight picks in the next NFL draft. Bubba Smith, Clinton Jones, George Webster, and then Gene Washington. Jimmy, so what was life like for you guys at Michigan State on that campus back in the mid-60s? <laughs> well, I tell you, it was a little bit surreal. It was different in that my hometown was only 60,000 people. And Michigan State University student body was 44,000. And of that 44,000, probably 200 were black. And most of the black students knew each, knew each other by name and recognition. And you, if you were an athlete, you kind of existed in the throes of the the black population of the campus because that was what was most comfortable. I think the fact that it was a number of us that knew of each other from the South and because back then there was a grapevine of publicity that traveled amongst the, the best black athletes on the in the South and on the East Coast. So we had some familiarity with each other by proxy, not by physical application because we hadn't met each other, but then the family at Michigan State University that was created by the environment and the family at Michigan State created by Duffy Doherty, we were accepted 
as a player and your ability spoke for the for the longevity that, that you had as a player. And most of us that were recruited there were all starters. Some of us, some people didn't start, but most of us, as you mentioned, the the big four all high school all American guys that were Big Ten all Big Ten players and and that and all Americans college football all Americans they kind of set the tone of our existence at Michigan State. I'm curious about from a football perspective, I, you know, a game in history that I obviously was not born for yet, but born yet at the time, but have always just kind of <laughs> had a huge curiosity about is the 1966 Notre Dame game, the 10-10 tie. Notre Dame ends up finishing number one ahead of you guys, even though they went for the tie at the end. It's so foreign to fans today where we have an actual playoff and a national championship to decide it. What was that like for you guys, you know, to, you know, you, you, you left it out all in the field. It's, it's a tie game. And then I guess you wait and see who the newspaper writers decided between the two of you was number one. Totally. You were at the mercy of the sports writers. And then they had a coach's poll, but we were undefeated and tied the game, tied the Notre Dame game. And we went home after the season. The Big Ten at that time had a no repeat rule because we had gone to the Rose Bowl the year before. We couldn't go back and, and repeat because of, the, because of the, the conference eligibility said that you couldn't go two years in a row because it would take away from your academics. So they sent the second place team to the Rose Bowl, which was Purdue. So really, we were our national championship or our Rose Bowl in '66 was we were playing for an undefeated season. It was the biggest game, or it's turned out to be the most watched college football game of all time. It was the biggest game uh, that we, any of us, were involved in, in the atmosphere around that game because Notre Dame was. They also had a bunch of All-American players that were really good. Terry Hanratty, uh, Alan Page, Nick Eddy, all of those guys at Notre Dame, they were vying for a national championship in an undefeated season. And the two undefeated, se- two undefeated teams met in what we thought was the last game of the year. It, it was our last game, meaning Michigan State's last game, but at the end of that game, which dictated kind of how our Parsegian uh, played the end of the game. They had another game against Southern Cal to play. And so when the game ended in a tie, it was kind of like, can't we keep going? Uh, what do we do now? Everybody just kind of stood with a blank stare because it was such a buildup to the game and it ended in a tie, which wouldn't, which, which will, will stand, you know, now because no game, all games are played to a completion. They play it out. They play it out to there's a winner with the overtime deal. But back then there was no overtime. And so our season just ended when we packed up our stuff and took Christmas vacation. Jimmy, in context, so back from 1959 to 1972, Duffy Doherty brought in 59 black players from the South. According to the book Ray of Light, which is a book you helped work on with Tom Shanahan, a writer who's from Michigan, that 68% of those players he recruited and brought to Michigan State finished their degrees. wanted to ask you, you, you spent three, four, almost four decades working in the NFL. Did you feel like there was a lot of progress along racial lines and perspective there, or did you feel like there was actually, relatively speaking, a little progress over that stretch? 
during my time in the NFL. Yeah, from the seventies to the to the last few years, even. Oh yeah, very limited process. Very limited progress. When I started coaching in the National Football League in 1977, I was one of only four black coaches in the entire NFL: Elijah Pitts, Lionel Taylor, and Alan Webb at the New York Giants. And I made the fourth coach. And that was 1977. The position of quarterback in the National Football League was was for blacks was was not even was not even thought about. And then uh, there were certain certain positions that blacks were allowed to play and not play. Center being one of them, and middle linebacker and quarterback were the three positions that were off limits to blacks. That kind of changed when the when the AFL came in into being and before they merged in, in the in, with the NFL and Willie Lanier became a middle linebacker at the Kansas City Chiefs as a Hall of Fame player. And then subsequently later on, there became some black centers in the in the NFL. But from, a, from the black quarterback standpoint, James Harris and Marlon Briscoe played a little bit but that really didn't take take place or take hold until the until the 80s. So the progress of of black players at certain positions and black assistant coaches that that progress didn't start until the middle middle to late 80s, where there were more black assistant coaches and no black head coaches existed at all. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about your own path. I mean, you spent a long time as an assistant coach. Uh, you know, worked your way up, became an offensive coordinator for several different teams, and yet never got that call to be a head coach. You know, now we see anytime anybody has any success as a coordinator in the NFL, they get that at least that first opportunity. I mean, is it yeah. being too simplistic to say race was the main reason? Oh, very definitely. Society wasn't ready for that. Uh, the fan base of the NFL wasn't ready for that. When I was when my star was shining the brightest and I was the young coach that was destined to be to reach the, the level of, of head coach, it, it just wasn't societal wise, it wasn't it wasn't something that was thought of or that could be done. Because the NFL during that time when I I coached in the NFL thirty seven years, I had four interviews for head coaching jobs and probably one of them was uh, sincere. And that was at the Kansas City Chiefs. I think the other three were more out of curiosity. Uh, Jim Finks, Jim Finks interviewed me for the job at New Orleans when Jim Morrow was hired out of the uh, out of the other league, and uh, I interviewed with the New York Jets and the Green Bay Packers. And I knew the general manager at the Green Bay Packers. Uh, Tom Brotz, who had been in Atlanta when I was an, an assistant with the Falcons, and there was no way he could bring me to Green Bay as a head football coach. Some years later, Ray Rhodes did go there as a head football coach. But it, the the times, the changes, and the times uh, during the time during the during my my era of coaching, and I coached 37 years in the NFL. And then age became a problem. So basically before it was denial of opportunity because of color. And then later it became a denial of opportunity because of, of age. So the two things that factor 
to the end of my career, uh, everybody, uh, most of the people uh, agreed or were in agreements that uh, my qualifications were enough to 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 be considered or be a, a, a head football coach. But the, um, the climate and the environment in the NFL was a such that uh, it didn't happen. Jimmy, with the with the the past being what it what it was, and all the stuff you've experienced, how important is it for you to to make sure that the legacy of that time is not lost, and to speak out not just about Duffy Doherty, but kind of what you saw back then, because it just seems like everything sometimes happens in a vacuum, and a lot of people don't remember. Sue and I are probably older than most 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 football fans. And quite honestly, it's it's, yeah. it's a different era for us. Yeah, well, it's it's very important, uh, and that's why I'm 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 I was fortunate that uh, Tom Shanahan undertook the uh, undertook the role of, of creating and writing the book, uh, The Ray of Light, so that it wouldn't be lost on the future generations. And during this time of Dr. Martin Luther King being celebrated because we were we were right in the middle of the heights of the civil rights movement when we were at Michigan State. So we really wasn't down south uh, standing in uh, lines and uh, getting fire hose. But he came to the university to speak in 1964. We were all present. We were all there. And Duffy made sure that we were we were there. But uh, our, our backgrounds and the things that we undertook during the Jim Crow era, the things that Dr. Martin Luther King stood for and that he that he fought for, racial equality and being judged by the content of your character and not the color of your skin, those things are important to my grandchildren and to the youth of this generation because they can't remember, they don't remember, or they can't relate to a time when you had to when you couldn't walk on the same side of the street as a white lady, or uh, that you could go into the front door of the movie theater, or you could sit in the restaurant and have a meal, uh, the things that we grew up with. It's very different, so it's important that we keep those stories alive for the youth of today to be able to understand progress that has been made and the, and the, lack, and the progress and the much of the progress that still has to be made. You know, Jimmy, Bruce mention some of these stories getting lost to history and there's one that i'm embarrassed to admit i didn't even know about until maybe the last couple of years you one of your first coaching stops you know in college was wyoming and in 1969 <laughs> yeah. the black 14 there's a great espn documentary about this recently you know the black players on that team just wanted to take part in a in a protest the um, university was ha- or the students were having about byu's policies leading into a game against BYU, so the coach kicked them off the team. And this was in 1969. You coached at Wyoming in 1976, not that long after that. Yeah. I mean, it's just astonishing now that, that a coach could have kicked guys off the team for that, and, you know, at least based on what I saw in the, 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 the fans and everybody there were supportive of him. You know, what was the legacy of that by the time you got there? Well, it was still being talked about. The, the 14 was still being talked about when, when I got there. Uh, but it wasn't the climate wasn't much different, and I went there with Fred Akers, and it was he had an open door policy and an environment that he was that we were going to make sure that 
equality and opportunity was was there for all for all athletes that we recruited. Though when I when I was living there, I think there was one other black family in Laramie that lived in the in the city of Laramie and it was the Parham family that uh, the father worked for the Union Pacific Red Railroad that for 30 some years of uh, years and, and ended up staying in Laramie, Wyoming. But there was still a lot of hatred, a lot of animosity uh, toward Lord Eaton, who was a coach at Wyoming that, that took the black, took the scholarships of those 14 black players. And, and they would, all they wanted to do was just express kind of like the Colin Kaepernick thing of today. They just wanted to wear armband, uh, black armbands, uh, black headpieces, and, and, and show support for for what was uh, inadequacies and an injustice down at Brigham Young University. I don't think a coach could get away with that today, though uh, Colin Kaepernick had gotten back in the NFL for kneeling. But uh, I think from a college standpoint, uh, because of the diversity of the student body, I think it'd be very difficult to, in, in today's climate to do that. Yeah, I think sometimes we just don't, you know, our perspective on on things is so two years ago seems like a long time just to, you know, the context of that, you know, it just seems it seems so foreign yeah. if you grew up in a different so, time. Right. And you take that and take it 50 years ago and, and imagine what that was like. Somebody uh, said to me once that you must have been really good to play quarterback at Michigan State to even be considered to play quarterback at Michigan State. And it it, it, it wasn't so much that I was good. I had to be so much better than everybody else. That good was just a <laughs> good was a term that you couldn't think of in terms of getting on the field to play that position because when I played, there wasn't another black quarterback in in America at a major university. So it took a lot of um, courage for Duffy Doherty to do that. He made me aware of all the things that were the mail and stuff that he was receiving and all of the the uh, negative things uh, that were going on. But he insulated me and I'll forever be, I will always be indebted to him for giving me the opportunity uh, and it didn't help that we won 19 out of 20 games in the two-year period. So that was a plus. That was a big plus in terms of the ability to be able to play. And I'm, like I said, I'll, I'll be forever indebted to him for the opportunity he gave all of us, even to come, in, come down in the South and go into Black neighborhoods and visit in the home of black athletes because that didn't exist. White coaches didn't go in the houses of black athletes uh, probably until late in the late in the 70s or so. Mm. Well, Jimmy, we appreciate your time. For people who want to find out more, and I encourage you to do it, the book is called Ray of Light. It's been out a few years. Jimmy Ray, Duffy Doherty, and the Integration of College Football on the 1965-66 Michigan Start Spartans. The author who worked on that also was Tom Shanahan. And you can get that at Amazon. Probably is probably the easiest way to go. Or, or I think there's a, uh, a link to it on rayoflightbook.com. Jimmy, we re- really appreciate your perspective, and uh, it was a pleasure having you on our on the Audible today. Yeah, I, I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for the opportunity of having me on, and uh, I'd uh, welcome the opportunity. I appreciate it, Bruce. It's Bruce. Just 
what a great perspective to have and really kind of, I mean, again, puts into perspective just how far the sport has had to come in terms of acceptance and, you know, listening to him in particular talk about his, you know, the limitations to basically to his NFL coaching career, how much progress there's still left to be done. Yeah, I thought the biggest parts that jumped out at me, it just is, look, we both grew up watching college football in the 70s and 80s, and and you hear about Woody and Bo, and you hear about some of the iconic names of coaches, but until, I, I remember I had lunch with, with him, uh, Jimmy, uh, in San Diego, it was he was training to help uh, get... Connor Cook and Cardell Jones ready for the draft. He was working with George Whitfield down there. And I knew a little bit about Jimmy's history, but I didn't know the depths of it. And I certainly didn't know how significant Duffy Doherty's role is in it. And some of the things that really just jumped out at me when I researched this, going back even to get ready for the Audible today, you hear a lot, especially out here on the West Coast, about the, the famed Sam Bam Cunningham from USC running all over that Bear Bryant Alabama team in, in the 1970 and what that did, or in the early 70s, what that did for the spread of, of African-American players into SEC country. But what's noted in that book that, that uh, Jimmy was a part of, the author Tom Shannon points out that that USC team had seven black players. That 1966 Michigan State team actually had 20, including 11 starters. And so I think th- largely Duffy Doherty's role, I think, was was has been kind of glossed over a lot and probably doesn't get enough credit for the impact he had. And again, to hear Jimmy's perspective on that, I thought was, was really fascinating. Yeah, I may have known a little bit more about the Duffy Doherty story going in, but... I think one thing that maybe people don't realize about that time period is, and I, you know, I had a mailbag question recently about, you know, what do you consider the modern era of college football to be? And I said, I consider it to be basically 1971 on, because that's when the South finally, finally integrated uh, the SEC and ACC schools that were still holding out. But I don't think people realize that it's not that Bear Bryant personally didn't want black players on his team. He just... It was considered, you know, something that you the, the reaction, the backlash would have been too severe. So you heard him mention Frank Howard, you know, at Clemson steering a play like those guys. What they would do was help, you know, help find the top black athletes in the South, a spot to go play. But unfortunately, at the time, you couldn't do it, you know, close to home. You had to go up to Michigan. And I give Duffy Doherty all the credit in the world for his role in making that happen. Yeah. Should we turn our attention to current college football? Yes, let's move on. Really current football, because uh, the first guy I want to talk about is no longer a college football player, and that's Kyler Murray, who I'm not surprised at this point, but uh, finally made it official that he's choosing football, and he's you know, fully engaged in the NFL, which immediately you know let the draft debates begin. And it seems like you know last year it was... Oh, is Baker Mayfield too much of a head case? Is he Johnny Manziel? Blah, blah, blah. This year it's clearly going to be, is Kyler Murray tall enough to play in the NFL? Well, he's definitely not as tall as, as Baker Mayfield. You know, he's going to probably be under 5'10", and the NFL measures down, so it'll probably be 5'9". I think a, a maybe even more significant factor is when they look at him, 
will they think, okay, he's 195 pounds. Is he going to be not tall enough, but is he going to be big enough to allay some concerns about durability and what happens when he takes a lot of big hits in the NFL? Because if you look, Baker Mayfield is short, but he's not small. He's probably around 220 pounds. Russell Wilson, short, not small. Kyler Murray is different. He's probably 20 pounds smaller when you see him in person than those other guys. And I think I think there will be some concern about that. How much remains to be seen, because all it needs to be is one team in the top five to jump up and get him. What do you make of that? You know, I think times have changed and there's more acceptance than ever of uh, unconventional quarterbacks. You know, I just look at the fact that he, you know, as good as Baker Mayfield was at Oklahoma, you know, Kyler Murray in his one season broke all his records. So I think he's clearly, clearly, you know, equipped to do it. And if anything, brings another dimension with his running ability. I mean, he's probably the fastest quarterback, would you say, you know, that's going to be in this kind of position, I think, probably since Michael Vick. Yeah, I don't know if, if if RG3 had more straight line speed. I mean, he was a legit big time track guy. I would I would imagine that uh, Kyler Murray's quicker than RG3 was. But, you know, we've had guys who are super dynamic athletes. What we haven't had many of them were that dynamic athlete who also could be very accurate with the ball. And his arm is really good. But if I ask you right now, who do you have more confidence in? If you were an NFL team, him or Dwayne Haskins, who would you say? I think I would say Dwayne Haskins, but it's not like it's that, you know, it's not an obvious thing. I think it's interesting that the two guys who have kind of clearly separated themselves are both guys who weren't on anybody's radar going into last season because they hadn't started yet. So, you know, going into the season, Justin Herbert, Drew Locke, you know, those were the names being mentioned, but... You know, it speaks a little bit to this is not the quarterback class of last year with Darnold and Rosen and and Mayfield and whatnot. That two guys who there's a, to me there's a, is a little bit of risk in judging Dwayne Haskins off one season. Now I will say it was a spectacular season, and he did it against some really good defenses at the end. You know, in particular Michigan and Washington. So, you know, I think that's why I have a little bit more faith in him. But I, I like I mean I like Kyler Murray a lot. I guess my only concern would be I think in the NFL. They tend to stay very conservative, and then once somebody has success, then they kind of overcorrect. I think that's why Josh Allen became Josh Allen, because everybody wanted to jump on and see who would be the next Carson Wentz. So remember Vernon Adams? I do. So Vernon Adams played at Oregon only three years ago. He also was a short quarterback. He also only started— He was a small quarterback, too. Yeah, small quarterback. He also played only one year at the— you know, as a power five starter, he actually got hurt for part of it. You know, when he did play, he was, let me just confirm here, the most efficient passer in the country that season. Number one in the country, uh, Baker Mayfield that year was number three. And he never got a sniff. He didn't even undrafted. He he's didn't even in, make a practice in, squad. He's up in the CFL. Yeah, and he's up in the CFL, and he's barely playing in the CFL. So, I, I mean, chances are he would not have gone on to NFL stardom. But there's a there's a, you know, Huge difference here between the way Kyler Murray's being looked upon as a possible top 10 pick and just three years earlier, somebody who wasn't considered big enough to play the position, you know, went completely undrafted. Well, I think a couple of distinctions, while they may have similar stature, Kyler Murray's arm is stronger and also Kyler Murray's a much more dynamic athlete. Vernon Adams could run some. 
Vernon Adams was not a guy who's going to run, threaten to run under 4-4. And I think he's just have a different level of juice that you got with Kyler Murray than what you got with Vernon Adams. So, you know, I don't think size-wise I can see the comparison a little bit, but I just don't think they have the same level of athleticism, so they're not the same kind of prospect. And I think as much as, you know, statistically we can draw some some parallels. It's it's kind of risky to do that because sure. they're in different systems, and and I just think that the college game you can get away with a lot more than you can in the NFL. I'll be honest. I'm not like I'm not sure that like I have more confidence in Baker Mayfield going into the NFL and succeeding than I do in Kyler Murray. I think when I hear Kyler Murray, it's like, wow, people are talking about it as the first pick in the draft. I'm like, whoa, that's that. Well, some of that, right, is a product of you just know that two or three teams that need a quarterback are going to draft a quarterback. Yeah. Then again, I mean, the Cardinals have the first pick in the draft. They took Josh Rosen last year. Now, I get it. They have a new head coach. But I think people are looking at it and go, well, Cliff Kingsbury's agent's Kyler Murray's agent. So, you know, A plus B is going to equal I. I just think this is a little bit of the function of there's a lot of time between now and the NFL draft and this time of year, you know, once the NFL go, you know, season ends as much as I like the AAF, it is, you know, it is left quite a void. And so there's going to be a ton of Kyler Murray hype because there's always this kind of hype going into the draft about something whether it was Johnny Manziel or Cam Newton or what happened to Manti Teo and his girlfriend. And, you know, there's always something that falls into this, you know, Josh, Josh Allen or versus Sam Darnold versus whoever for the first pick. You know, there's always something that becomes the sexy thing. And the reality is it's hard for people to get too fired up about which of the 15 defensive linemen are going to go that high. So here, let's find the quarterback and, you know, for a couple of days, it was like some nonsense story because somebody on TV had never seen Dwayne Haskins play before and thought he was a better shot putter than than <laughs> than than than. Passer. Well, it wasn't just some random person on TV. It was our our good pal Stephen A. Smith, who look, he's his job is to get on TV and shout for four hours, and it doesn't seem to particularly matter if it's based in any sort of reality. So. That comment, that soundbite of him saying he's more of a runner than a passer, sure, uh, you know, I had a field day with it. A lot of people had a field day with it. Draymond Jones, Ohio State's defensive tackle, you know, was like, man, if you were running quarterback, we would have gone 1-13 last year because he's so slow. That's That was just ridiculous. I think the most impressive stat about Dwayne Haskins, 70% passer last year. You don't see guys over the course of a full season usually – get to 70%. Tua and Kyler Murray were both 69%. Haskins, 70%. He maybe wasn't throwing the deep ball quite as often as those guys, but but enough, right? I mean, he wouldn't be talked about like this if you didn't know he could throw downfield. So well, what's, I think, what's, you know, he snuck up on people, but he's, he's, he's really good. Well, what I think also should be pointed out with the case of, of Haskins is he lit up a top five defense in Michigan in a big rivalry game. And also he went up against arguably as good a secondary as there was in the country in Washington. And he had a really good game against, against the Huskies as well in the Rose bowl. So, and I would give him credit for, I know what people said, 
he wasn't a starter, but he jumped in in the Michigan game in 2017 and played really well in a high pressure environment. So I would give him credit for that. I mean, is he still really still pretty raw in a lot of regards just because he hasn't played that much football? Yes. But to me, he is clearly the top guy. But I, I feel like there's no such thing as a can't miss. I just feel like there's there's more margin for room with him than there are with the other guys, Kyler included. Let me get your opinion on something. So, like I said before, Haskins and Murray seem to have kind of separated themselves. They will be the top two quarterbacks taken probably, barring some some unexpected development. After that, uh, I'm going to name you a bunch of guys on the list. I'm going to add, and I want you to tell me who you would have the most confidence in and that they're going to become a good NFL quarterback, okay? Mm-hmm. Daniel Jones from Duke, Drew Locke from Missouri, Ryan Finley from NC State, uh, Will Greer from West Virginia, Jarrett Stidham from Auburn. I think those seem to be the main ones. Jarrett Stidham to me is the most interesting one because he. I think when NFL teams work him out, they're going to come away very impressed, I think. The part that's going to he had some struggles. He was he was banged up at the end of 2017 and he really couldn't leave. uh, I think part of the injury. I don't know what was going on in terms of the play calling and the kind of system they ran. It wasn't what necessarily on on Chip Lindsay was. It was more of a Gus Miles on thing. And I so there I'm curious what the what the remaking of of Jarrett Stidham's going to look like at the end of this, whatever it is, next three months or this process. I might be wrong on Drew Locke. I'm not, you know, I'm not seeing him as a top 10 pick. Daniel Jones is a really interesting story because he was a kid who wasn't very tall when he was in high school and then shot up late. And to Duke's credit, and David Cutcliffe knows as much about developing NFL quarterbacks as anybody who's coaching in college football right now. I know from guys I knew on his staff way back when, when Daniel Jones was a freshman, they said... They think this kid's going to be a first-round pick, and it sure sounds like he will be. Now, having said that, I'm not sure if I like him any more than in the limited stuff I've seen from Ryan Finley, who I just think is solid, and maybe Ryan Finley's another Andy Dalton. But I don't know of any of these guys. I don't know if there are any – like, if you told me they all went in the second round, it wouldn't surprise me. Like, I just feel like there's a gap between Dwayne Haskins and everybody else in this group. Yeah, somebody else will, will go in the first round. Uh, and quite honestly, go. I think if you put if you put Justin Herbert, if he had come out, I think there'd be a gap between him, between Dwayne Haskins and everybody else, including Justin Herbert. I just think that I don't think anybody else was was in was in Haskins category right now, arm wise and and passing skill wise. The one who I'm a little surprised that the buzz has kind of faded from is Will Greer, because I feel like before Haskins and uh, Murray emerged, you know, he was talked about as the guy who could possibly be the top quarterback in the class, or him and Drew Locke. And now you're hearing second round for him, if, if that. So um, I think he's really good. And, you know, a lot of this will depend on basically how they do with their pro days or when teams work them out. There's usually some shuffling towards the end there. Even, even you know, remember, I think even as late as a day before the draft last year, nobody had Baker Mayfield number one overall in those mock drafts. Like that, the Browns kind of kept that coy. And, and I don't know, there were just a lot of draft Knicks who just didn't believe in him, I guess. Just, well, of course you're going to take Sam Darnold if given the choice. So who knows what will end up happening. There's always somebody who... who uh, unexpectedly drops or unexpectedly rises uh, when you actually get to the draft, and that's a long ways away. 
You have uh, uh, you didn't mention Trace McSorley. What do you think? I mean, I, you know, I love Trace McSorley. Watching him in college, I don't know that he'll be. Do you think he'll be taken all that seriously? I think he will. He played in an offense where they took shots downfield. He's not smaller. He's bigger than Kyler Murray. I mean, he doesn't run as fast, but I wouldn't bet against Trace McSorley being on an NFL roster as a quarterback for at least five years. Uh, I yeah, I, for sure. That could definitely happen. I don't, I don't know, you know, that he's going to be drafted particularly high, but that could happen. What about, what about my man Clayton Thorson? I, don't, I mean, he's big, but... <laughs> I've I've never understood the the NFL fascination there. You know, he was a four year starter. All you gotta do is look at the stats; they kind of speak for themselves. But hey, never in a million years would I have guessed that um, another uh, recent Northwestern quarterback uh, would have been a NFL starter for the Denver Broncos. For us, and well, did he end up starting for two years or parts of two years? Maybe maybe parts of two years, but I'm not Trevor sure. Simeon, that. yeah. Speaking of pro football, Stu, how much AAF did you watch this weekend? You know, I can't say that I watched any of it. I saw a lot of highlights and stuff on Twitter. It looked pretty It looked pretty cool. Now, I do wonder what happens from here. You know, they got a nice, you know, they got a lot of buzz and a lot of, you know, a nice little boost from being on CBS, like big CBS, for the first week. But from here on out, it's CBS Sports Network. Well, it's not just CBS Sports Network, though. It's NFL Network. I mean, there's other opportunities. That's you know, good, because I don't get CBS Sports Network. I think there is, like, I thought the football quality was pretty good. The thing I liked, and this is why I wanted to bring this up on this podcast, and I will admit, I watched a lot of AAF this weekend. So, I live in the house with a four-year-old football nut, and he was... You yeah, know, that definitely he, works in your favor. Yeah, he didn't really care to make the distinction. He didn't know who the logos were or anything like that, but... I think just watching the game, it was entertaining. Now, the part that I think was really interesting to me is the pace of the game, and you'd have to watch it. You can't pick this up on highlights. You'd have to watch it. was pretty quick, and there it wasn't a lot of commercial breaks, which, look, there's a business component of that, and that's probably part of why that happens. But there was no kickoffs, and so it just kind of went into first and ten. And the college game is much slower than the NFL game. The NFL game, actually, it doesn't have the same pace, but I remember the NFL game my crew did late in the year up in Buffalo. I mean, that game had like a 25-minute first quarter, and it was over in three hours. College games are almost never over that fast. So, and I'm one who doesn't really mind, say I don't mind the, the pace of the game. But in this case, I didn't have anything invested in. The first game that I watched was San Diego-San Antonio. I mean, I guess we were rooting for the, the California team just because I live out here. But it didn't really – it was just about watching the game. And it definitely felt like a more enjoyable product because it was faster. Would you be in favor of like – like if somebody told you tomorrow that the kickoff is going away, how, like, how would you feel about that? I would be absolutely fine with it. You know, and, and, and this has come up in the past, obviously, in terms of safety. I see people who, you know, when, when somebody writes a column about it, I see people say, oh, you're, you know, you'd be destroying football. You'd be destroying this big, exciting part of football. Well, I would, you know, of course, a 100-yard kickoff return is a very exciting play. There just aren't that many of them. So 96% of the time, the kickoff is kind of a formality. I know onside kick, you know, that would be an issue. What, what do you do that's the equivalent of that? But, no, I don't, I don't think I would miss it at all. And, in fact, when you watch overtime, which is extremely exciting, 
do you ever find yourself being like, I wish there was a kickoff after that touchdown? No, I, I got to admit, like, I, I remember somebody I know who's more connected to the NFL than me had said, if this rule doesn't kind of work out, this, this might be the last stopgap before kickoffs go away. And this is something I heard in the last year. And I was like, whoa. And it's just like, well, that would be a fundamental change. And then after I watched this game, and granted, it's not an NFL game, it was okay. <laughs> you know, and like I said, yeah. it helped It helped feel like the game was moving quicker. Now, I don't want a game to turn into to college basketball or NBA where it's a two-hour product. But I just thought it was a, it's a good compromise for an issue that I feel like is something that is, has, I don't want to say plagued, the, plagued football, but has been to the detriment of football to some degree. It looked like the other like really cool technological, that's not even technological, another cool wrinkle they did was letting you listen in to the replay official while they were deliberating, which, you know, nothing, there's nothing that infuriates or frustrates fans more than targeting calls and overturn and why was this call overturned and that one wasn't overturned. So as soon as I saw that, you know, the clip of uh, it was a, a female replay official in one of the games who actually changed her mind mid-course. I was like, well, college and NFL are going to have to do that. Like, if they can condition people to this, they're gonna. There's going to be an expectation that if they can be transparent about it, why can't what? you know the the coordinate? Why can't the replay official in the you know Auburn LSU game? Why can't we listen in on them? Because there's a much bigger fanatical risk that's involved. I mean, right now. The Memphis and Birmingham fans, while they may root for their their respective teams, they're not. I don't think they're going to go nuts if something happens like it did in the Saints Rams game. Of course not. And so but, to open to open them up to the like there were one of the games I watched. There was a call that the broadcast crew was convinced, and the and the coach. I think it was Mike Singletary's team may have gotten a short end of a replay call. And it was surprising because the broadcast crew was going in one direction. And I just think right now there's a novelty aspect to the AAF. If that was a SEC game or Big Ten game or NFL game, I don't, you know, like there's some, there's the blowback side of this that you're not getting where it was like the stuff you're talking about. I'm just not sure how well that gets managed the other way around. But there's blowback now, right? You're saying you're saying how like being able to see the person's face and hear their voice. Yeah, because then they're they're the one who ultimately is responsible. Can you imagine if you're the replay official who didn't overturn the Saints call, you know, and everyone knows what you look like. You're in the middle of it. And it's just I, I don't I mean, like you said, there's that now. I just think it intensifies it even more. All right. Fair enough. You know, I mean, I also don't know that it'll get as much attention as it did the first week. But, you know, I'm I'm certainly not anti AAF. I hope it succeeds. I think it's cool that, you know, some of the players are so still so, you know, uh, Christian Hackenberg is somebody who's still so recognizable. And I'm glad you told me that some of the games are on NFL networks. I know I'll get a chance to see it at some point. Do you know that the difference in direct TV? So I had CBS Network Sports Network during the season. And then after the season, I looked at my direct TV packages and was like, $15 difference between the one that had it and the one that didn't. And that was the only channel that, uh, that I had remote interest in. Of course, I didn't realize that would become the home of the AAF. Well, it's one of the homes of the AAF. And, and I'm sure Adam Zucker will plead for you to, to, to stay with that cable package. Oh, I'm sure Gary Parrish is not thrilled with me right now. Should we get to the mailbag? Sure. 
as always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Look at that. It's just old hat at this point. Bobby Lamb, what is your guy's obsession, specifically Bruce, with downgrading the importance of recruiting rankings? It seems like you go out of your way to point out when someone is a three-star guy. Considering the amount of variables between when a kid is in high school and when he gets drafted, I think having 25 to 30% of your five stars becoming first-round picks is a pretty good average. Also, your nugget on the five stars in the AAF versus the Super Bowl. So they, you, you pointed out on Twitter that there are in your column that there were six five stars in both the Super Bowl and in um, the AAF this past weekend. Uh, makes it seem like these guys were busts when several of them were very good college players and NFL draft picks. All right, Bruce, what do you have against recruiting rankings? I don't have anything against them. I think my context here is when people automatically assume, well, this guy's a five star. That means he's infinitely more talented than everybody else. And I, what I would say is just take some of these with a, with a grain of salt. That's all I'm saying. I think people automatically look at it that way because there's no other way to quantify it. But the reality is, and I think this is, this is important, what I'm about to say, is the recruiting rankings most prime, almost entirely are based on the physical. They're not based on the intangibles. They're not really based on character. And so when we see that, you know, I go back to Tashawn Reed's story a few weeks ago about the number three ranked team in the country was Florida State. And when that class almost completely uh, is, is gutted, yeah, there was Derwin James, but after that, it was nowhere near uh, measuring up. And I think part of what happens is when you get guys who get booted from teams or guys who are just don't measure up character wise, I think then all of a sudden people look and go, okay, this guy was a bust or this. So I think that's part of what it does. I didn't use the, the five star thing I found about the AAF compared to the Memphis uh, Birmingham game and to say, okay, the recruiting guys got it right for the Super Bowl or whatever. It's just the truth is it's a way, way, way more fickle process than people probably realize. And do I think I could do better if I was anointing stars out? No, I don't. I don't think if you told me that uh, a lot of high-level coaches were working at recruiting sites, I, they would probably do better. I don't, they wouldn't, you know, the NFL gets it wrong. And they have way more, they have way, have way more intel than the college coaches do when they're evaluating players. You know, by the time you're a 20, 21, 22-year-old prospect, your body's not physically developing. You're not going from like 6'5", 240 to project into being a 310-pound lineman. They know about what, you, you know, the systems aren't, you know, against who you want gone up against unless you're like playing at Division three level. You know, you're pretty much going up against what they know about, whereas you have somebody gets evaluated from a small high school or something, you're probably not playing against much, and it's hard to gauge this kid's athleticism versus another. So that's all it is. It's just kind of a reminder of that. But to go back to the initial point about, well, to have 25 or 30% hit rate on five stars, I don't think that's that great. I mean, if you're telling me a guy is a five star, I think I would expect him to be a lot more than just a draftable player and say that's a great hit rate or something. Yeah, I think where you and I differ is, I mean, I think you look at it on a very case-by-case basis. And of course, if you look at a list and you start going name by name, there's going to be busts and there's going to be guys they got completely wrong because it's not a perfect 
you know, it's just, it's not possible to project every guy correctly, but every sort of macro study that's been done on this, it's a pretty strong correlation, you know, both from a team and player perspective, the teams that sign the four and five star recruits are much, much more likely to compete for championships. The teams that don't, and the guys who are given five star rankings, you know, who is a very small, per, you know, it's like 30, 35 guys in a, out of the thousands of guys that sign in a particular year. So given how small that pool is, the fact that, you know, their percentage chance of becoming NFL starters or first round picks is so much higher than the four stars, whose are then so much higher than the three stars, tells me that on the whole, they're doing a pretty good job with this. But there's going to be, you know, there's going to be exceptions. There's just, it's inevitable because of all the things you said, how hard it is to project how a 17 year old or beyond some of these guys are being, you know, now evaluated at 15, 16 years old, how their bodies are going to develop their character, all these things that you can't really quantify. It's never going to be perfect, but it's definitely getting better and better. I think over time, quick notes, uh, a couple of you had asked, why isn't the podcast on Spotify? And that surprised me because I thought the podcast was on Spotify, but it wasn't. We have fixed that. So you can now listen to the Audible on Spotify, just like you can on uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here